Welcome to the Alliance Theater Podcast, an exploration of theater and the people who make it happen. I'm Dr. Margarita Koppelmaker. I work as the Community Engagement Manager at the Alliance Theater. And today I'm joined by Alexis Woodard, who is the Assistant Director of the Alliance's Musical Working, currently playing until June 6th as part of the Under the Tent series, and two participants in Working, Deborah Scott and Eric Richardson. Deborah Scott, she is the Executive Director of Georgia Stand Up, which is a think, and I love this, a think and act tank for working communities. And Eric Richardson, he's the president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. So join us in this conversation as we explore the innovative ways that Atlanta stories and voices give shape to this production of working. I think I wanted to start with Alexis. Alexis, if you don't mind, I'm gonna to toss a couple of questions to you about this musical. So this musical, for those of you who are not familiar with working, is based off of a 1974 novel by Studs Terkel, who was a oral historian and a media personality. And he wrote a book that was called Working People Talk About What They Do All Day and How They Feel About What They Do. And it was a book that was really a a book of interviews of voices from below that were supposed to kind of elevate an every ordinary working person's story into sort of an extraordinary level. It was revolutionary at the time and Stephen Schwartz built a musical from it that premiered in the 1970s and then was revised. It's kind of an iterative process. It's been revised along the way and there were some major revisions in 2012 where songwriters like Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame added to the mix, streamlined the stories, updated these uh, sort of working stories. So Alexis, I'd love to hear from you about working and what makes this production of working different from other productions of working. Thanks, Rita. Uh, So this production is really different because when Tamala first came with the idea, it was all about making working for Atlanta. Um, And so similar to the model of the original Southern Circle book, the idea was to interview local Atlanta workers and to have them talk about specifically what it is that they do all day and why they love their jobs and what the hardest part of their job is. And then to integrate that into the play to make this show specifically for Atlanta. Even things as seemingly small as changing certain locations or, or different places that would be referenced in the show to places that are local to Atlanta. There's a reference in the show to going to Greenville. There's a trucker in the show and he makes rounds to Greenville. And we change that from its original place. That'll be local to a place uh, from Atlanta where truckers who are local to Atlanta would, would go and ride. So we looked very specifically at how we can make this as specific to Atlanta as possible. And then wanted to bring in as much of the community voices as we could to make sure that folks who are coming to see the show, see themselves and their communities reflected back at them. Um, You know, I did a little bit of math also prior to this session, and I counted that we had over 100 participants that we um, interviewed or recorded for for this production, which is pretty impressive, and 62 of them were workers or organizers. I would love to hear from you. I know we we referred to it in the rehearsal process as the Mad Lib script. We had tools that we were using to gather stories from from various workers that we were uh, interviewing. Can you tell us a little bit about the Mad Libs tool that we had and, and what kind of work it did for the production? Yeah, absolutely. So the Mad Lib scripts were a way for us to be able to easily interview and gather critical information from people. As simple as what is your name? What do you do? What do you love about your job? What is the hardest part about your job? Do you have kids? Where do those kids go to school? And there were some sections that were super specific, like my daughter goes to blank. And we wrote those specifically for certain sections of the play. Like we knew that we wanted to make in working with Stephen Schwartz on how to how to localize the script to Atlanta. We wanted to make a sound montage about young people and looking towards the future. So we inserted that specific Mad Lib to gear us towards that section in the play, which is also why we requested interviews from young people in Atlanta graduating high school and going on to college so that we could make sure that we had that perspective in the show. So there were just very specific points where we said, this is, we really want to hone in on what this means to workers in Atlanta. And so we just made sure to ask that question. So uh, we were just really careful about going in with the script and knowing and being very intentional about what we wanted to know and how that would help the show move forward and how those things would, would fill in the show for us. 
And once we had all of those, those interviews in the Mad Lib script, how did you, what were you guys looking for? How did you make decisions on what to include or exclude from the production? Oh, it was so hard. Cause there was just so, there was so much um, greatness. We wanted to include everything, but first and foremost were we wanted to make sure that everyone um, or as many people as we could were represented um, from all different types of demographic, all different types of job, all different types of work um, were represented. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we had a little bit of everything, a little bit of everyone, folks who were Southern, folks who were transplants, folks who immigrated here. And we wanted to make sure we, we represented as many types of people as possible. And that the stories that we pulled also worked beautifully with the, with the rest of the show and just tying together these different pieces of what we had cut together from the 2012 version and from earlier versions of working. So it was really, really difficult, but we tried to include as many folks as possible. And there was this really lovely moment uh, near the end of the show that I love where we cut together a lot of the names of the participants where we give them a sort of a curtain call during, while our actors uh, have curtain call as well. Deborah, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this over to you because you were certainly one of the people that was um, one of the interviews and one of the people that was really lifted out and highlighted. There's a monologue from your that was derived specifically from your interview and a song where you're one of the three organizers that's featured in the new song that's being written. I would love to hear, and I'm so curious to hear what it must be like to have sat and watched a show and heard your story reflected mm -hmm. back to you. What was that experience like? So first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for this opportunity. I actually was sitting next to Eric and I had no idea. And, and maybe Lydia told me about the song, but I had no idea that my words were used in that way. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden when it was Tawana said, you know, said my whole name straight up and I was just blown away. So of course, by the end of it, Eric can tell you I was in tears because I had never heard someone else use my words like that and portray uh, me like that. So it was a high honor. I know in this past election cycle, we've had some honors of having some t-shirts. People made some t-shirts with my name on it and it was a, a mural, but that beat the cake. I mean, I just was so pleased and honored. So I appreciate the honor. So I need to see it again because I really don't understand what she said because I was, I, I just blacked out. I was just excited. <laughs> so I can't wait to go back and really listen, you know, knowing that it's coming and not be so overwhelmed, but it was excellent. Eric, what about yourself? Was having been interviewed, was the experience of what, listening and watching this production, was it what you, what you were expecting? I was really surprised by it and, and, and greatly honored, you know, to be a part of it, you know, and then uh, Deborah's part, you know, yeah, it blew me away too, you know, because I said, boy, they got you down. And that was Deborah all the way, you know. But advocating for the community was something that was needed. So what I really liked, you know, you had all sorts of labor in there, including uh, stay-at-home moms that have been disregarded for so long excluded from social security in, in a sense but their job is essential too and what the labor movement is all about is not just unions yeah. it's raising the boat for everybody but they're all undervalued as we know at this time but to hear those different voices and experiences i was overwhelmed i really enjoyed it and you know i brought my daughter with me and I was a single dad, so you know we're we're driving to dinner, and she's pointing out, Dad, I know this was you, or I know that you know I know you've done that, and so and so. So you know it was it was good. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I, I hope the general public, you know, gets a better understanding of their value as workers. And, you know, Eric, I think that's very important that you lifted up that it really was the story of workers, American workers, whether they're in a union or not, you know, and the hardships on, on these jobs as well and, and what you do. Um, one of the things that really connected with me are the women, of course, um, Tawana, Courtney and Jewel. I mean, I felt like they were speaking directly to me and I know those stories. I know those people. 
Um, because, you know, when, when they talked about, you know, five generations or four generations of making beds and being a domestic worker, I know people who have, have lived that legacy and to hear their stories, you know, the back aches and the way that they're treated, it, you just made it really real. The play made it really real and the truck drivers, and it was all original voices. You can hear that that really was a compilation of, of people's stories. And I think we need more of that. We need to respect working people and the people that really make America and particularly the city of Atlanta work. And, and part of that is, is looking past their uniforms, looking past the blue collars, looking past the people you see on the trains and buses and in valuing their contribution to this community. And I think the play really honored them in such a, a great way. And particularly after this whole pandemic for that, for me, that was my first theater opportunity all year and I love the theater, right? And so I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm back in the theater. Even though we were outside, it just, it was, it just does something to my soul. But for this to be the first production of the year for me to that highlighted the value of workers and it's such diverse workers, black and brown, all different colors and, and, and different levels. It just really made it rich for me. And I'm really excited to be able to bring a bunch of people back. I'm just so excited about it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for plugging live theater there, everyone. Take note. <laughs> yeah, we're back live in, you know, in and, and in a social, in a socially distanced, COVID safe way. And you know, what's also interesting, actually, what makes me also think about this production as being unique, and I'll throw this out to all of you, is because of COVID. This had to become a concert staging, right? So the, the 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 actors are standing in these kind of boxes with dividers between them for protection. There's very limited visuals aside from a backdrop that's there actually for all of the shows that we show in the Under the Tent series. I mean, it's really a play that you don't watch but you listen to, right? And and I found that to be kind of a, a relief after this past year where I feel like we're always living in a very image oriented, very image driven society. But I think that's just been accelerated this past year as I'm, I'm, I'm constantly sort of on Zoom and you know Netflix numbers are up through the roof. Um, I was wondering what, what that experience of if, if engaging that sense of listening and hearing stories, if that offered sort of a new perspective on on working issues or on storytelling for anyone here? Well, you know, with a lot of people being, um, you know, different industries allow people to work from home and what have you, you know, and then the other ones, and especially our, our frontline workers, you know, that had to be out there in a the pandemic. And then with the government passing laws, giving corporations immunity, you know, which, you know, puts our folks in jeopardy. And we've, lost a lot of workers due to contact with the public without protections that these companies should have provided. That hurts, mm -hmm. uh, deeply hurts. And um, we just had the Workers Memorial about a week and a half ago, uh, where we went and honored the uh, six employees at Foundation Food Group that died when the nitrogen uh, line erupted and um, killed six people. And uh, but there was a total of 207 in Georgia that we actually honored that died from either on the job accidents or uh, through exposure to COVID. So the separation that I saw with each one of those workers, you know, was like the protection that should have been there in the first place. You know, uh, it symbolized that. And um, I got appreciation for that. I just wish I our corporations were look as, as uh, caring and giving, but we know they're not. I don't want to get into the politics of it right now, but well, that's but what I do. Well. I mean, workers are political, right? I mean, we're political pawns, um, if you will, in terms of um, this economy. But to your point about hearing, I, I think I could, they were so expressive, you know, truly they were actors, um, mm -hmm. you know, and musicians, and, um, and, and the voices were just amazing. But yeah, and they were so, the, the faces, they told their story by their expression on their faces, but you're right, I was able to just hear their stories 
and the stories hit me in a way that you're not looking at what's happening on the stage because people are moving around and looking at the props and okay what's about to happen over here it's like they told you what was happening as they told you and you were there you could feel it you could hear it you could see it their expression so did it and it was so cleverly done with just a few props you know, coffee cups and lunch pails and vests and smocks. Um, but it was it was transformative because the way that they participated with each other and, you know, supported each other on stage. And I'm sure part of that was stagecraft, but it was really um, supportive of each other. I love the way that they looked at each other as they were telling their story. And I think that's part of what's missing is we have forgotten to look people in the eye. We've forgotten to connect to the humanness of them. And so and oftentimes blue collar workers are not being connected to in that way. That's just the janitor that cleans up after us versus that's a human being who has a family. And this is the way in which they make their money so that they can feed their family and take care of their family. The play really exposed that in such a unique and raw way, but it also was like, you know, it, it wasn't a sense of hopelessness. It was a sense of, you know, but we're going to be all right, you know, because, you know, we're going to make this happen. And, you know, I have hope for my daughter. I love the, the one that talks about the domestic workers because it's like, I don't want my pretty daughter to have to make beds, right? That, that spoke to me. So, you know, you think about the ancestors and our family and our parents that have sacrificed for us. And those of us that have gone to college, you sometimes forget all the sacrifices the people that came before you did. But, you know, as they say that, you know, we're our ancestors' wildest dreams. I wonder if my grandmother or my great-grandmother would have imagined seeing their granddaughter or great-granddaughter portrayed on the stage talking about working family issues. I don't think so. I didn't imagine it. So I don't think they would. But I think my daughter, who's in her 20s, you know, that's normal for them in, in the sense of social media, they get to see themselves in a way in which our generation has not. So I think it was very empowering. I hope that, that you, we have intergenerational conversations about it. Yeah, I, I love that you bring that up. And and Eric, when, when you were interviewed and I was fortunate enough to be in that interview, I remember you speaking about your father who was in a union. I mean, you have such deep deep a deep relationship to unions obviously you work as the president of the coalition of the black trade unionists and i have been getting this question a lot as we've been working on this musical and which is how has working changed and how have workers rights and working issues changed let's say from the 1970s or um, just picking that time because that was when working was first written um what does it look like today Say, you take 1986, this average CEO made about 40 times what the average worker made. Today, it's, it's in the stratosphere. It's almost 600 to 1,000 times more than the average worker. The promise was technology would make our work easier. But what it did, it forced us into more production. You know, more, more expectation from us because the technology was there to produce and they took it to the max mm. you know so that promise of making the work easier so you had more time and to spend with your family and relax you know and enjoy life as well as have a good productive work life was all a lie mm -hmm. and we still have not experienced that to this day so actually working conditions although they're not you know sweatshops you know, the conditions, the human condition of it, to, to me, is a little, uh, little askew. Because I know my father, when he came from home from work, we all sat at the dinner table. Wasn't no going in the other room to eat your meal or just not everybody being there. Mm. You know, and now it's the case where you have both parents having to work yeah. because of, you know, the wage limits. So who's parenting? Okay, where's that connection? Mm. No, I don't think it's gotten any better. I don't think it's got too much worse, but it was it's headed in that direction. You know, workers have to give up so, so much for these corporations that, that make billions and zillions of dollars, you know, and they think it's a hardship to give us a few pennies, you know, 
when you look at minimum wage here in Georgia is five ten an hour. People think it's the uh, federal, you know, seven dollars, but no, it's five dollars an hour. So you know, although fifteen dollars an hour is a goal of ours, you know, um, that's the low mark. You know, we're looking, workers should have a living wage where they're comfortable. You know, and somebody can stay home and parent if necessary. You know, there's going to be a time as families grow in age where, you know, the children are independent. And then, you know, if both parents choose to go out to work, fine. And then, you know, there's a choice. I was a single dad. I mean, I had to parent. You know, my dad was definitely involved in my life. I just think that uh, we need to be more concerned about how we're living rather than how much we're making. Ooh, and I feel like that that to me sounds so much like what Deborah you were speaking about, which is the the dignity of working people. And you know, we were talking so in so many of the conversations around this musical. There was a little bit initially like you know, why do we want to, sp- not so much the why do we want to speak about, you know, working people, but like everyone's tired of speaking about work. We want to talk about life and all the things we do outside of work. Um, but I think one of the really amazing things in having watched this musical um, in our version of it at the Alliance is that um, it's through it's through the stories of the work that sort of people's biggest dreams and failures and aspirations um, and their limitations and the things that they care most about are, are revealed. It is actually sort of a lot of this, how people are, are living rather than necessarily, you know, work in that sort of, you know, punching the clock um, in and out sort of, sort of way, which is, which is really amazing to, to see and um, kind of listen to in, in the musical. One other thing that I, I, I hope we can touch on speaking of Georgia having a a different minimum wage than the federal minimum wage, uh, a lot of what's elevated in this musical about Atlanta and the story of Atlanta is the role of organizers um, and activists. And I think this past year, Atlanta has, I mean, I think Atlanta's always been in the national spotlight around that, but I think it had sort of been pushed into the spotlight once again as as a hotbed for political organizing and a place to watch. I'm curious to hear from I guess any of you, from all of you, what you think makes Atlanta so so organizing scene so special? Well, I don't know if it's special, but it's necessary, right? So organizing, and I, I love the fact that you you that you were able to use some of the words in the song Five Things. It's necessary for us to rise up. This we can't talk about being in Georgia and and talking about the value of work and the value of workers without really subconsciously or consciously understanding that, you know, Georgia was formerly a slave state. And so the value of some of the workers that were brought here and have lived here and have helped to build not only this country, but this state, the fact that, you know, the wages are still depressed. Um, It's not just a different living wage, it's a lower living wage, right? And so, which affects the quality of life. And that continues to be the case unless we change it. And that's why we need to organize. And that's why we need to organize for policy. That's why we need to make sure people get registered to vote and make sure that their vote is not suppressed. And that's why we need to stand up for workers and stand up for communities while they're in these fights. And that's why we need to build better programs to make sure our folks get into the job pipeline to make sure that they can participate in these apprenticeship programs and pre-apprenticeship programs to make sure that they can get the skills that they need and to make sure that they can trade up for their families. So for me and for us, it's about how do you, you live those principles and program our organization in a way that's responsive to the community's needs at the time. So it's very um, interesting that we're having this conversation today and we just saw the press conference with the mayor who is announcing that she's not going to run again. And I just got the um, phone with a, a reporter and um, you know, she said, well, what do you think about that? And I said, actually the people win because you know, no critique on her leadership, but this opens the floor for community members to decide what is important to them and for them to choose who their representatives are, it's a job opening. So anytime you have a job opening, the position of power in the job 
hiring process is the employer. And so we have to reconstruct and help people to understand that the elected officials work for us, that the people are the employer. And so you get to interview them for the job. You get to select them and you get to create an agenda that they have to answer to. And so for us, this is level setting you know, because the floor is wide open. They get to choose a brand new mayor, a brand new city council uh, president, a brand new um, city council. And every municipality in the state right now, just about is going through this process, which means the people power that we all help to create, Lydia and, and, and Eric and all the trade unionists that were out here in the field um, in a nonpartisan way during this election, we get to say, okay, so now it's your time. You know, there are two kinds of organizing is either organized people or organized money. We can't, we don't necessarily have organized money, but we have organized people. And so what we're saying is we're going to have a collective agenda for workers and we're going to stand with each other and support the domestic workers and support the airport workers and support folks who are working in the trucking industry and support people who are working in these industries with, that are not getting a fair wage. And we're gonna center the conversation around the kitchen table issues and make those policy issues. So, I mean, I think the, the play just tips that off and I'm really proud of the Alliance Theater for taking such an edgy play and really turning it on its head and making it real. Uh, I think Alexis and, and Pamela and, you know, and, and Margarita, you've done a great job in terms of making sure that you centered the voices. I really love the fact that Lydia Glaze was a part of this project and helping to connect you all because she knows the people who are on the ground that are doing the work and also connecting to those live stories. One of our, um, our staff members, her son, um, Lydia, Linda and um, Kwaise participated in the conversation as well. And they were thrilled and they were just excited that, you know, somebody cared about what I thought about. And I think we need more moments like that where everyday people recognize that somebody listened to me. Yeah. Somebody asked me a question and waited for my response and they heard me. And I think that you heard the people during the interviews and you captured that so beautifully in this play. So we're excited to be a part of it. Thank you, Deborah. That is so great to hear. We, I mean, we did this for Atlanta and it is so beautiful to hear that just throughout the, throughout the rehearsal process being so careful about, I mean, the, we sent all of the actors, like everyone who the actors were, were, um, uh, were talking for, who were using their words. We sent them all of the interviews and they listened and we talked um, about the work that you all do. And we talked about who these people are and we shared with them our experience and talked to them. So it is so um, wonderful to hear that that came across and that just, um, uh, like genuine compassion about wanting to represent these people happened. Um, so that is, that's, that's wonderful. Oh, I mean, what a thrill, but it also is important that we continue this, this exercise in hearing from each other, telling the story and then elevating the regular person. I mean, the worker that, that needs this job, right? The worker that needs to go to work and raise their family. That's who we center. Eric centers in the Coalition of Trade, Black Trade Unionists. We center at Georgia Stand Up. And I know a lot of the labor unions do that as well. But there are a lot of organizations out there that are on the front line, like Aleo, like Pro-Georgia, and a number of organizations that center the worker and the worker experience as a part of their work. And what's unique about this play and wonderful about it is that you get to hear each other's stories mm -hmm. and communication is key to healing our society mm -hmm. because we don't know other people's stories, but the more we learn, the more we're connected to see that, you know, we're the same. We're all the same. We're just in different capacities. Whereas some folks have tried to divide us by ignorance in not knowing who these other folks are or have a deep feeling for them because they've been through the same struggles we have. And the more we get these stories out and the more we communicate, we understand more and more about each other and then we could be more unified 
as not just a city, but a nation, mm-hmm. you know, and eventually the world, you know, because we're not in a silo, mm-hmm. you know, although we act that way, mm-hmm. but we need to tear those walls of um, ignorance and prejudice and whatever down, you know, racism is an invented item. It's not an actual thing, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a it can be erased. It yeah. can be erased. And, and I would say to that point, um, Eric, also, you know, it's racism, sexism, classism, all of that. But I think that also the message of this play was also we're more than just the work that we do. Mm-hmm. We are human. There, there you go. Yeah. We love I even the, the the retiree, which I think was kind of based on you a little bit. Eric. Uh, <laughs> I think that only the, that was only the 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but. I enjoy, I enjoy, I mean, I work for this, you know, Mm -hmm. and I retired in a good situation where I'm not bound by um, corporate rules or code of conduct, you know, so now I can get out of the street and act a fool, you know, (laughs) for people, you know, and I enjoy it, you know, it is not a matter of me getting paid because they've taken care of me well through my labor, Mm -hmm. so I can use those resources and time and knowledge and experience, you know, to help move everybody up. And I'm not, I'm not bragging, you understand? I feel it in my heart, just like, you know, Deborah's so passionate, you know, she lays it at, you know, she lays it on the line every time there's an issue in the community. And, you know, we always bring her stuff because during the play, we discussed about another situation in one of the communities that we need to get to work on. So there's always plenty of work to do and things to improve. Yeah, there's you know, so uh, I've learned from retirees and what have you. And, uh, you know, they've told me things that I needed to watch out as I went through my work life. And, you know, heeding their words allowed me to spend 40 years in a company. It's fine. There were two lines in the um, in the show that continue to, to stick out to me. One that was in the original, um, and one that we, we got from a, a organizer um, in Atlanta, Zochiel Barbera, uh, and she said, and it's in the song as well that organizing is hard work, it's heart work, and always feels too big when the day is through. And that just reminded me about what she said there, Eric. And then earlier, what you were talking about, Deborah, about how it really is about the human and about their story, is when uh, Amanda McKinney at the very beginning of the play says. Jobs are not big enough for people. And the very first time I, I read um, this play, that is the one thing that stuck in my mind about how people always define themselves by the work that they do. And that is great to have pride in mm-hmm. your work, but to not label anybody as, oh, they're an iron worker. Oh, they're a mill worker. It is about the person and the human inside of that who does that job and caring about that person and, and seeing the humanity in that person. And that was our, um, our hope and our dream for this play. Appreciate that. I'll also add that it was an interesting experience in terms of uh, gathering the interviews. I'm glad you brought up Lydia, Glaze, Deborah, because it was an inc- incredible uh, relationship that we built a partnership um, in order with, with United Way and, and Lydia, who is the civic and labor liaison for that organization. Because these were, these were, it's not it's not easy and it's not quick. It's not easy work that, t- you know, that you can do in a month or so to, to find people that will speak to you to build that trust, um, to gather those interviews. It, it took time and we initially started with um, a process where we were gonna do self-recordings. You know, people were going, we were gonna send out a, kind of like a, a call and people would self-record these Mad Lib um, stories. And, and we found pretty early on that, that that felt impersonal, you know, no one was just going to record them a story about themselves. And, you well, know, nobody's going to turn down Lydia Glaze, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Unless it's Lydia Glaze who forces them to record and upload onto, <laughs> onto our page, which happened actually. But I think that's the point. When they did record and upload, it's because there was a strong personal connection from someone. And so what we ended up doing was, was you know, interviewing someone and then asking someone um, that we interviewed, you know, who else would you recommend? Who else should we speak to? And so this, it became the process of 
building this play with these community voices was an act of labor in and of itself. It was a kind of work and I had, I think I gained a new appreciation of, of doing this work and recognizing that it did take time, that it required conversation and personal conversation and trust making and trust building um, before you you could really put something like this um, together. So it was a it was a deep lesson in in doing kind of community work in the production process of, of this of this that, play. That's what I was gonna say is that's basic organizing 101. Yeah, exactly. That that one-on-one -on -one communication is that house visit. So these mm -hmm. are the new house is the box, right? In the in the web. But you know, that's that's what it is. It's connecting people to those personal stories to the issue that's gonna elevate everyone. And so tapping into that and getting people to understand that the movement is bigger than just my one thing or my one story or my family, but together we're stronger. And that's why we organize workers. That's why we work and support community. So you did exactly that process. You find the best person to, as the trusted messenger, messenger to organize more. And each, each one asks one, who else should be in the room and who's not in the room and whose voices aren't there. So you all did a fantastic job of making sure that the cast was diverse and that the perspectives were diverse. And I really, really appreciated it. Thank you. So I know we're kind of running up against our, our time limit. I, I have a question for all, all of us, all three of you. So this play is iterative. Every, it, seems, it seems to be this thing. I don't think I know of another musical that seems to shift and shape and need to be updated based on the, different, the changes in society and the changes in working conditions in our country. Um, if, we move, if we imagine there's gonna be a new version of working that it's gonna come out in let's say 15 years, what do you guys hope it includes? And that is to say, what do you wish is true for working people in 15 years? Oh, I, I would one that living wage would no longer be an issue that it's a standard um, quality of life and living wage that comes along with affordable housing and all the supportive things that community needs. Um, one of the things that we focus on is a lot of around transportation and access to opportunities. We know that there are a lot of people that can't get to work without public transportation. So we want to make sure that there's a public transportation system that gets people to good quality jobs quickly, right? So that there, there's, there's not a need for, you know, uh, unequal city like Atlanta. The Atlanta is one of the most unequal city in the entire country in terms of the wage gaps. And so we, that we won't be talking about that then, that the wages will be high enough for everyone to have a livable wage, a decent house, can afford um, good quality childcare and healthcare for their families and are happy and have time to enjoy the parks and the trails and all the other good amenities that people are moving to Atlanta for that they, they don't get to enjoy. Right now we have an Atlanta that people who live here and have lived here for years don't enjoy the amenities that, that, that most of us on this phone um, um, do. And so we wanna make sure that it's as equitable as possible. So I hope the next time the play is done in Atlanta that we can talk about how diverse and equitable the city of Atlanta is and how much affordable housing there is and how much Atlanta values everyday workers. Well, I should have went first, Deborah. <laughs> you said it hard all. coming behind. It's hard coming behind you because you you've covered just about everything, you know. Uh, but you know, in 15 years, I hope that uh, workers and management are on a certain level where we're cooperative with each other and we are productive and we look for the human aspect more so than the profit margin. You know, um, like I said, you know, it's how you live it. You know, greed has come into the situation where, you know, you see, you want, and then you want more of that, you know, but you're not thinking about the damage it does to your soul. Because the example you said, somebody else is watching as well. And hey, I want to be like Mike, you know, and get this, uh, you know, Rolls Royce and what have you, but it doesn't really fit your lifestyle or your neighborhood, you know. But we, we've become a society that uh, values, I'll put it like this, Maxine Waters said this years ago, we know the cost of everything and the value of absolutely nothing. Ooh. That needs to change.
Mm. I have to turn this around a little bit for Alexis, just because <clears throat> I need to pull this out that, and we've already touched on this, that one of the other things that working the musical kind of points at, and certainly the way we had to work to create working the musical is that actors, artists are also workers and ones that have been greatly impacted and affected this past year with the COVID-19 pandemic, but other issues, you know, um, racial inequality in our profession and so forth um, that have been lifted out and held up and made much more visible, I think, and something that everyone is trying to consider and tackle. Um, in our local artistic space. So Alexis, I kind of feel like this question is also about what would working in the arts in this city want to look like in 15 years? Yeah, um, man, this past year has been such a, uh, we've been calling it like a racial reckoning for just the theater world. There was a, a list of demands that was sent out when the pandemic first started by the organization We See You White American Theater, um, which talked about the racial, economic um, inequities in theater. Um, something that, like a really practical thing that we can start putting into place is five day work weeks. You know, um, lots of folks, especially during like tech weeks, will work. 12 hour days, six days a week. And that's only if you're working on the creative team, like that, that would be my hours. If you're looking at someone who works in production, they're working 70 hour weeks easily um, because they have to be there before and after we leave. So something just as equitable as having a five day work week is something that we can put into place. Another demand was making sure that the highest paid member of the organization is making no less, no more than 10 times the lowest paid member to talk about um, wage gap disparities, which you were talking about, um, Deborah. Man, uh, uh, making sure that creative teams are diverse as well as the actors that you see on the stage. Um, um, just talking about the, the diversity of our cast, we also had you know a diverse creative team, but that's not always the case. You know, you can have a Broadway musical that's an entirely black cast with absolutely no people of color on the creative team. Um, so committing to having at least 50% diversity um, or non-white people on your creative team is are, are things that, that we could do. I mean, there are so many things that, um, that are, that are uh, I don't wanna say easy fixes, but that are things that are actionable that we can get done um, within the next year, within the next two years. Um, and I think that it's just about the people who have that power um, making those demands. I just saw, um, there is a director in New York who is starting to put in her contracts that if she, a black woman director, is responsible to reporting to an entirely white team of producers and white administrators, that she needs an additional fee for emotional labor. Like things that people empower, making those decisions and setting those precedents um, is what is going to help that help move that change. The next time that I'm directing a show, enforcing that I'm not going to work with an entirely white creative team. I'm not going to work with an entirely white cast. My cast and my crew and my company is going to reflect the city that I'm living in, the city that I'm representing. There it is. Yeah, here, here. <laughs> well, speaking of the next time, how can um, listeners here connect with the work that you're doing? What should they be? Um, what, what are you guys doing in your respective organizations that we should hear about? Well, right now, CBTU is not a union, number one. Uh, we're a co coalition of um, trade unionists. And it's not so much black anymore. It's, you know, we're diverse and we're trying to grow our diversity as far as CBTU goes. But what we do is we advocate uh, between labor and the community. So we work with organizations like Deborah's and other organizations. We try to bring them all together so we're on the same page and we can share resources. Because we're we're not funded, period. You know, we uh, ask for fees for our members to join and what have you. And there's some specifics in that. Um, you have to be you have to be a member in good standing of your union, but you're going to also be uh, a leader in a community group. Can also join uh, CBTU. You know, and then we have different projects that you know, we go after, we have like a carrot team that works on what are we gonna, how are we gonna help the community in a disaster? We work with the folks doing COVID testing. We feed the, um, you know, we work with people that, you know, need volunteers to um, distribute 
food during this pandemic and what have you. So, you know, we can, you know, we're fluid and we, we try to stay that way. So, um, you know, we're always getting calls for help and, you know, I'm calling Deborah because she's better at it than I am, but we work together to see if we can come up with a solution that's equitable for everybody. You can look at our organization, um, www.cbtu.org, and you can join or donate. We'd appreciate it. Get involved. And are you a 501c3, your nonprofit organization? Yes, yes, we are. So I, I love the question, and I would kind of say, you know, it's in the song, right? And so we rise up, we stand up, we build up. So Build Up is a workforce development program we have, and Trade Up is as well, where we look at um, construction jobs and, and, and pair people up and try to get them the training that they need in order to get into these apprenticeship programs. So we'll continue our Build Up and our Trade Up work. We just hired a new director. Um, we'll be doing a lot of affordable housing buildings. We're cleaning out creeks. We're maintaining our building. We're having our open house in June. Uh, we're getting ready for our candidate forums and our candidate college with our partners at VEC, um, Voter Empowerment Collaborative. We are getting ready for the city and the municipal elections. We're having all kinds of conversations about voter registration and voter education. Of course, we just came off of a major campaign fighting and dealing with voter suppression. And so we have to now put in new practices in place to make sure that people can get IDs, to make sure that they can actually go and vote. So this, the next eight months, if you will, is it was going to be very, very busy for us. Um, and then we go right into the 2022 elections um, where the governor's race. So between the mayor's race and all of these races, we're gonna be very busy, but we also have a very robust um, policy institute, which is our leadership development program. And Eric, you graduated from the program. And then we also have um, a robust internship program. So we have some interns that are leaving, um, finishing school now and getting ready for summer interns. So you can always intern at Georgia Stand Up as well. And we're doing a lot on social media now. Um, and we have a new studio in our building. So we're trying that out to see how we can do podcasts and other things. Eric, I do need your voice. Uh, so we are, as, as we call ourselves a think and act tank for working communities, one of the things we just did last night is we've been supporting um, a number of protesters and protests um, since the summer. And so one of the things that we realized is, you know, just as the play um, talked about, they're tired. They're tired to they're tired of having to have to protest for their rights, you know, for, you know, whether it's voter suppression or police brutality or police reform or somebody got shot, whatever the case is, they're tired. So what we did last night is have a wellness session for about 30 women that have been on the front line of this organizing movement for the last six months. And we were just pouring back into them, letting them know that they have to do a lot of self-care and take care of themselves and not pour from an empty cup. That So we try to pour back into them so that they can get, hit, hit the the front lines again. And so we, we try to um, be a generational um, organization or intergenerational organization. I'm a product of the civil rights movement. I was trained by a lot of civil rights advocates and we're losing that generation. And so part of my job is to be that bridge to the future generation. And so we're, 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 we're living it in real time because we have to, I have to create a thousand more Deborah Scotts, right? Because they have to continue this work. This is this is one movement that just continues. And so each one teach one. And, and that's what I have to do. So I feel a sense of urgency that we have this um, these young folks that have risen up and said, we're not going to take it anymore, but they need some guidance and some guide rails. And so we're shifting our organization to make sure that we can seed into this next generation in a way that they know that they're supported, they feel the support, they can see the support, and then we can get them strong so that they can go back out there and do it again and change the structure that keeps working people down. You know, Deborah's organization is fantastic. I graduated from there. I got skills that uh, I never knew existed, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, you know, I'm getting up in age now, believe it or not. You know, I know I look good, but I'm, I am getting older and a lot of guys in my position are afraid to give up that power, mm. you know, and it's time for us to set aside, you know, the, the movements that were successful were started by the young. Yeah. 
Yes. And for, and they had older generals that sat back and advised them mm -hmm. on strategy. But everybody's born for their own generation. So if, if their struggles are now, that should be this generation that's in the fight. And we should be sitting back and contributing where it's necessary to keep them on track. Like Deborah said, and you know, like I recommend and I have recommended a few folks to Deborah. And you know what, Deborah, let me tell you something. We'll have to talk offline, but a couple of those guys that we thought weren't going to make it, they're doing great things right now, just from the little bit that you gave them. Thank you. We are happy to partner and participate in any of these kind of conversations that will help to move the needle. Um, the more non-traditional, the better, because I think we need to speak and teach in a way that people can hear it. So if people are going to the theater and not expecting a conversation really about the value of work, I think that's the absolute way in which you can reach them. So I am just so excited about this play and I can't wait for everyone in Atlanta to see it. That was amazing. Um, Alexis, anything that you wanna pitch? I, I will say this, I'm, I'm co-directing a show at the Alliance in the fall called Hands Up, Seven Playwrights, Seven Testaments. And it is about, it's seven monologues about being black in America um, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different variants of skin color, different types of people um, and all about folks experiences about, about being black in this country. Uh, I've been with the show for almost, I mean, uh, like five years at this point. And we are so, so excited. My co-director and I, Keith Bolden, that is coming to the Alliance in September. So come see it. All right, everyone. Well, it's too bad it's a podcast because I was doing all of the snapping, which in the theater world means, yes, you're in your, uh, what you're saying is resonating with me. I am feeling moved by what you're saying. And so much of what we heard this past you know, 45 minutes to an hour was so inspiring. Thank you guys. I want to thank all three of you, Alexis Woodard, who was the assistant director on working, Deborah Scott, executive director of Georgia Stand Up, and Eric Richardson, the president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. What a fabulous conversation. I am so grateful. And also thank you for everyone who's joining us um, for this Alliance Theater podcast. You can visit alliancetheater.org slash podcast for past and future episodes. And for questions and ideas, email podcast at alliancetheater.org. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.